When you are as beautiful as Cameron and I, it is somewhere between irony and tragedy to appear in films where people can't see our faces. And bodies. Especially bodies. Tonight's nom nominees represent a field that has made such incredible strides that watching their dazzling images is almost as exciting as looking at us now. When, Jude, when we're making movies, um, wait, I'm sorry. <laughs> They didn't uh, fix the teleprompter, so. Okay, this was originally written for Cameron and Jude Law. I stepped in at the last minute. Thanks, Jude. I mean, Steve. Yep. The truth is, both Steve and I are big fans of animated features. Here are some of the stars of this year's films to talk about being nominated and what it means to them. What would winning an Oscar mean to you? Well. Of course, it's a tremendous honor to be nominated with such a, a prestigious group. And these are all highly accomplished films. They are the best of the best. Look at this. You're looking at uh, Princess. What's the secret of Kells? These are all cartoons. I thought we got nominated like a real movie. Well, it would get my mom off my back. You know, like if she said, Coraline, go to bed. I could say, Mom, I've got an Academy Award. Or, tidy your room. Oscar, Mom, deal with it. Oh, that won't work, will it? Oh, well, just being nominated is brilliant. Because more people will discover our film, and me. And I got to come all the way from Ireland. I might get to meet that nice Mr. Martin with the lovely silver hair, like mine. Oh, you know, just to be nominated. Um, we won! Oh, we won! Oh, this moment is so much bigger than me. This moment is for all the nameless, faceless gators who came before. Lewis, it is just a nomination. <sighs> this isn't going to end up on YouTube, is it? So what does this nomination mean to you? Huh? What? What is that? I will explore it now. Doug, stop that! This is not food. Get down! Hey, look here! A squirrel! Squirrel? Here are the nominees for Best Animated Feature Film. Coraline, directed by Henry Selleck. Fantastic Mr. Fox, directed by Wes Anderson. The Princess and the Frog, directed by John Musker and Ron Clements. The Secret of Kells, directed by Tom Moore. Up, directed by Pete Docter. And the winner is... Hello there, and welcome to another episode of Spro and Lee Take on the Academy. The only podcast that rights the wrongs, celebrates the slighted, and rips Oscars from undeserving hands to bestow them at long last upon the worthier. I am Lee Charles. And I am Spro. Happy to be here again. The last episode, we took the Best Picture Oscar away from the King's Speech and dutifully handed it over to David Fincher's The Social Network. Here, here. Today, we come back with something that I think our audience might find controversial, or at least in my preparation for this episode, I was met with a lot of, oh, but I love Up, which is funny because when you pitched me this episode, you got my attention with two little words. You remember what they were? Uh, yeah, they were fuck <laughs> up. 
And then you gave me some homework, some movies to watch. And I must say, on the other side, I agree with you. I look forward to getting into this. Well, I want to walk that comment back a scotch. I was undoubtedly caught up in the excitement of you and I birthing a podcast together. And a lot of my musings from the last episode were kind of acidic. I was I was pretty poisonous and I kind of maybe want to shed that a little bit. And I'm absolutely guilty of hard opinions and foul language often accompanies those opinions. <laughs> so I'm going to try and curb that because I don't think anybody wants to listen to whining and bitching and pissing and moaning. But as far as Up is concerned, it, it's a fine movie. It just wasn't the best animated film of 2009 in my estimation. And I agree with you. This show is poised to be a lot more controversial than our first episode. Most of the millennial keyboard clicking dum-dums on uh, Reddit movies seem to agree with our notion that Social Network was the best film of 2010. But our discussion today is going to ruffle some feathers. So maybe even some of those same feathers. We're getting ready to urinate on sacred ground, wouldn't you say? (laughs) Pixar is sacred ground for a lot of people. It is. And before we get into our controversial topic, you say controversial. Is it controversial Uh, or controversial? It doesn't matter. I was just trying to be fancy. Stop calling me out. Oh, nice. You know, we talked last week about how I felt David Fincher's career was separated um, into two parts. And my relationship with Pixar is, is separated into two parts. And Up is sort of the median between those two parts. The first Pixar movie that I ever saw was Toy Story 2. And I remember sitting in the theater with my then girlfriend and all of the Easter eggs and references to the first movie were just making everybody in the theater howl with laughter. And I'm looking around completely not in on the joke. So my girlfriend was leaning in and being like, well, you know, they're they're laughing because, you know, in the first movie. But (laughs) that's still my favorite Toy Story movie. And I know a lot of people say that's the worst. But after that... I saw every Pixar movie in the theater, and I own most of them on DVD. I think the only one that I missed in that time was Cars, because it just looks stupid, despite the fact that it had my boy Paul Newman in it. And after Up, I haven't seen any Pixar movies in the theater, and that was 2009. I shouldn't say I haven't seen any. Interestingly enough, the only one that I have seen in the last 11 years was Cars 3. (laughs) (laughs) And that was only because... My wife and I took our nephews to see it, and it was spectacularly terrible. (laughs) I think Toy Story 2 was the only one that I did not see in the theater. But I feel like that's kind of what we're going to get into today, is that Pixar began losing me when they wanted to get heavier. And so the last movie I saw in the theaters was Inside Out. And I saw Inside Out in the middle of a five-movie binge. I challenged myself to stay in in a movie theater with my then-girlfriend at the time. From the first movie showing to the last. And we put Inside Out right in the middle thinking it was Pixar and it was going to be some light fare and could get us through the hump. And then you walked out of that just wanting to go to your therapist. Like I saw what they were doing with Up with being a little bit more heavy handed, but that one was just a slap across the face. What are your top Pixar's? Because I, I can give, Pixar's. You, give you mine. Give me yours and then I'll, I'll look at the menu real quick and order something. Finding Nemo, Ratatouille, Monsters, Inc. Those are my top three. And I would probably do, I'm a big fan of like OGs. Like if you ask me what my favorite Marvel movie, I would say Iron Man. So I'm going to go Toy Story. And I think I would agree with you. I think Finding Nemo and Ratatouille, 
Today we are looking at how Best Animated Feature became an award. An animated feature is defined by the Academy as a film with a running time of more than 40 minutes in which characters' performances are created using a frame-by-frame technique, a significant number of the major characters are animated, and animation figures in no less than 75% of the running time. Now, uh, what might be surprising is the Academy Award for Best Animated Feature isn't even 20 years old. In the 20th century, from like Steamboat Willie to the Emperor's New Groove, there wasn't even an award, which makes the Best Picture nomination for 1991's Beauty and the Beast that much more impressive. Well, I remember when they added that award too. I remember how exciting that was that they were going to be, you know, increasing the amount of Oscars that were given out every year. Back in like 2002, because looking into it, I was like, there's no way that Disney did not win any Oscars for anything that they were doing. And there was like special honorary Oscars for things like Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. I was just going to say Snow White was pretty, pretty celebrated. Yeah. That wasn't, Snow White wasn't nominated for Best Picture though? uh Uh-uh. Nope. Uh I don't know. Yeah, the first best picture was uh, Beauty and the Beast for an animated movie. Interestingly and enough, its its big claim to fame was its incorporation of computer-generated images. Yep, I remember that. I remember back in the day watching Entertainment Tonight, and they were showing, you know, like the ballroom scene, and, and everybody was amazed that there was a reflection in the floor of the yellow dress and the blue suit as they swept across the ballroom. Toy Story also nabbed the first feature-length computer-animated film Oscar, which was pretty much just created for Toy Story in 1996. Two animated films, The Nightmare Before Christmas and Kubo and the Two Strings, were nominated for Best Visual Effects, which those both share an interesting link with something we're going to get into today. But the Oscars were hesitant to create a Best Animation Award only because Disney was pretty much the only animators that there were. Because of like competitors like DreamWorks Animation and the field growing, the AMPAs decided to reconsider and created in for the 2002 award show the Best Animated Feature Film. And that went to Shrek. <laughs> Do you think it absolutely pissed off Disney that it wasn't the first winner of this award? Because they had, at the time, they had a uh, Monsters Inc. in the running. Well, Disney had acquired Pixar by this point. Yes, Pixar was an offshoot of Lucasfilm, and then it was bought by Steve Jobs in like ninety one, ninety two, ninety three, something like that. If they did own them, yes, they were probably very pissed off. And Monsters Inc. is such a better movie. I can't enjoy Mike Myers anymore. Ever since this kid that I grew up with called Mike Myers the luckiest guy in Hollywood behind Pauly Shore, <laughs> I've kept a pretty critical eye on him. He's got like three different voices he can do. And in Shrek, he does his Scottish accent that he does in So I Married an Axe Murderer. He's a lucky man. Well, good for him. So in 2009, when the nominee slots for Best Picture were doubled to 10, Up was nominated for both Best Animated Feature and Best Picture, the first film to do so since the creation of the Animated Feature category, which people really stroke its ego about. We're not here to talk about the Best Picture nomination, but we touched on it last episode about how the Academy went from a field of five nominations to ten. Do you remember this year? I do. I saw damn near every one of these movies in the theater, if not on DVD after the fact. It wasn't solid year. I think everybody was looking at the Oscars 
because of Avatar. Avatar is up there with the the best pitchers, and that's, of course, James Cameron's baby. So everybody was tuning in. Not the greatest movie, and didn't win Best Picture. That went to The Hurt Locker. And then there was movies The Blind Side, which I, I still don't understand was an Oscar darling, Inglorious Bastards, District 9, Precious, the whole title being Precious based on the novel Push by Sapphire, which is ridiculous. <laughs> uh, Up in the Air, A Serious Man, and An Education were the other films up for the running. And to me, you're not putting Up up there if it's not 10 nominations. Because Up, to me, doesn't really compete with Avatar at all. Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards, not in a heartbeat. Uh, the Hurt Locker, A Serious Man with the Coen Brothers, Up in the Air, uh, was okay. Precious, based on the novel Push by Sapphire, was heart-wrenching movie so up was seventh at best i agree with you when we think back to last week's episode and we think about the limitations of the nominations your point here is so relevant it's just the same movies are popping up in these categories to double dip like that it really limits it's it's really unfortunate that these same movies keep getting the the recognition so seven films in contention this year and right off the bat Ponyo, I know that you like this director. I did not see this film. I have not seen Ponyo, but the director creator essentially referred to as the Japanese Walt Disney. Miyazaki is his last name. He's done a just a mess of these fantastical animated films, which while they are in the style of anime, in my opinion, they transcend. I cannot get into anime. Can you get into anime at all? I can't. I feel like it's almost like a heroin addiction. Like the people that are into anime is like they're hooked. Like they can't get out of it. And really, I just I have not pushed that needle in. <laughs> I've tried. Jesus, with I've that tried. analogy. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've tried. I have a buddy that's like super. I've got a couple buddies that are super into it. One who talks about it constantly. So there's your heroin analogy. And then another one who talks about it occasionally, but doesn't try and push it. The other one of them's a pusher. He tries to get me to <laughs> to chase the dragon with him. But yeah, Miyazaki's he's retired. He's come back. He's so beloved internationally. I've seen Spirited Away and I've seen Howl's Moving Castle, but I did not see Ponyo, unfortunately. I'm sure it's a delight just as those other two movies are. And so unfortunately, nothing beyond that for Ponyo. Ponyo. <laughs> so that would be seventh in this list. Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, The Princess and the Frog, The Secret of Kells, Up, The Fantastic Mr. Fox, and Coraline. Once we get Ponyo out of the way, I'd say Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs is sixth on this list. It was nominated for a Golden Globe, but not an Academy Award. And this film, to me, does a huge disservice to the book. Agreed. So the book came out in 1978. It's fantasy. It's about a town, Chew and Swallow, where just food comes from the skies. And the movie is a science fiction film about a guy that invents a machine that sends food from the skies. So it completely loses its glimmer, I guess, of just ridiculousness for children. To me, it's trying to make something realistic by making it so much more ridiculous. I don't remember there being any protagonists in... It was just a picture book. You know, the main character was the town. I don't know that anybody had any names. Yeah. It was all about the art and the absurdity of it all. 
I loved that book as a kid. Loved it. That was one that I would have my ma or my pa read to me. And in preparation for this, I started searching for it online and I found the pictures that I haven't looked at in years. The hamburgers in the sky and the pancakes, the big flapjacks that are just like covering like a city block and all these people are watching the butter and the syrup drizzle down the side of it. It was a great book. It was a charming picture book. And the art in it was done by the author's husband, Jody Barrett wrote the story and Ron Barrett illustrated it. And he was he worked for National Lampoon. Uh, he was a, a cartoon strip artist. And it shows in his drawings. But the pictures were kind of Norman Rockwellian, very simple, but also an elegance, which I think made the absurdity even that much more fun. And then this movie, just nothing remarkable about the animation. I rented this when it came out on DVD, and I have almost no memory of it whatsoever, and that's okay. I may not have even finished watching it, too. It made almost no impression whatsoever, but it made money. I just want to hand out free copies of the book at street corners, so this is the word of Cloudy with the Chance of Meatballs. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, so that's it's not nominated in the field, and I don't think we have to really move it up. Third movie I want to talk about is The Secret of Kells, which I would bet most of our listeners do not know at all, because it's a French-Belgian-Irish mashup animated fantasy film by a little company that could called Cartoon Saloon. This movie is about a siege of a town by Vikings, an Irish town by Vikings. And it's about a boy that goes into the forest to try and find a fairy to complete a magical book to in order to save the town. And really, the biggest thing in the research of this, you could find parts of it on YouTube, is if you go on and watch the parts on YouTube and then go to the comment section, this movie resonates with people across the pond. And I, I had probably as much fun watching the clips as I did reading why people were, were so affected by the movie. YouTube comments? God bless you for having... Yeah having the uh, tenacity to soldier through those and the time they were all positive they were all positive like i feel like the irish don't know how to youtube because they mm -hmm. were not negative whatsoever take me to ireland take me to the emerald oil uh yeah that's that's cool it has a it has a very it's kind of folklore -y, feels like a legend or a myth i don't want to get into if my wife was here she could break down the difference between all of those but it has a uh, an old world feel to it which is uh, and it's actually very reminiscent too of of i mean the imagery anyway is uh, reminiscent of lord of the rings the town that they lit that that uh kells is it looks like isengard from mm. from middle earth it's got a giant tower the tower of orthanc um in the middle and it's a bunch of monks wise men you know the the the, the magicians of of the religious world, I suppose, but but the secret of Cal you made a good point that it you know it was reminiscent of Lord of the Rings because as I was watching it, I was like, this is almost like storyboards of Game of Thrones. You know the the things that they put in that if you dive deeper, you learn something from. Vikings traveled with ravens, so when they're knocking on the gate of the the kingdom, ravens are flying overhead, and it looks like the imagery there looks like people's what you would see people get tattooed on their bodies of black birds flying over like red skies. And that's the first sign that, that death is coming to everybody. And it's not a Disney film. It's not going to be 
spoiler warning for anybody that wants to see the movie, it doesn't end well for people <laughs> in this. <laughs> yeah, the Vikings the last- do not look like Vikings. They look like orcs. They look like the yeah. Urukai from Lord of the Rings. They're faceless. They're they're shrouded in darkness. They're vicious. They grunt. I mean, I don't remember any of them saying any words. Bestial sounds coming from them. And The last thing about Secret of Kells, so it starts and there's a bunch of different monks from different areas. There's a Belgian monk. There's a Nigerian monk. There's an Irish monk. What I found out, because I was looking at the drawings of each, and I was like, is this stereotypical? And I found out that each of the monks are illustrated by people from their region. So the Nigerian monk was illustrated by a Nigerian. The Belgian monk was illustrated by a Belgium illustrator. And that's how they kind of put their team together for making the film. And I thought that was really interesting as well. That is cool. So moving on, I really like The Secret of Kells only because it was the little engine that could because the next four kind of are monsters in the field and not necessarily monsters at this time because once we get into Fantastic Mr. Fox, this is Wes Anderson's first. But the remaining four in the field are The Princess and the Frog, Up, Fantastic Mr. Fox, and Coraline. And I feel like the weakest of those four is what Disney put up this year with their return to 2D animation and The Princess and the Frog. I would agree. Doesn't I still liked it, though. I found it... Um... I found it charming. It was cute and creepy in equal measure. The characters were amusing. They had vulnerabilities that I related to. Uh, The story was a bit vague in parts. I know that they, for some of those were choices, um, the reveal of of the fact that Prince Naveen became a frog and it was because of the fact that Lawrence turned on him, but they don't make it very clear. I think they were trying to be clever, assume that their audience is, you know, not expecting to be have their hands held through a Disney movie. All the rules about princesses kissing frogs and then the debt that the shadow man owed to the underworld. These were some parts where I was like, yeah, whatever. But I, I, I liked it. I'm always weary of any major release that I'm going to steal a word from you. That seems to be an example of ethnic pandering. Because if you got the wrong people in charge, it's going to feel disingenuous or too politically motivated rather than coming from an, a genuine place of artistic expression. And they were wise to bring in Oprah, not only to be a voice in the, the film, but she literally was a consultant, sort mm-hmm. of sort of like a PR for Black Americans. There was a lot of controversy leading up to this movie. I don't know how much research you did, but I mean, the movie was in development and people were already coming out and saying the title character character whose name was changed to Tiana uh, was originally Maddie. There was beef because that was too close to the pejorative Mammy. Maddie's original career was chambermaid, a little too house servant. And then the love interest was supposed to be a non-black prince. The love interest was white. The villain, of course, is I think the best part of the film is Keith David as the voodoo witch doctor. Keith David is the best part of almost every film he's in. Gentlemen. Enchanté. A tip of the hat from Dr. Facilier. How y'all doing? That's an echo, gentlemen. Just a little something we have here in Louisiana. A little parlor trick, don't worry. Sit down at my table. Put your mind at ease. If you relax, it will enable me to do anything I please. I can read your future. I can change it around some too. I look deep into your heart and soul. You do have a soul, don't you, Lawrence? Make your wildest dreams come true. I got voodoo, I got hoodoo, I got things I ain't even tried. 
I got friends on the other side. Yeah, the only thing that I wish that they didn't do with his voodoo witch doctor was there were parts where they're almost blurring the line between it and the genie from Aladdin. And I wish they kind of just didn't make him so Cary Grant dancing around. He was very, oh, so you're comparing him to the genie. Uh, He reminded me of Jafar. He he felt like if Jafar had a brother that lived in New Orleans and, you know, a couple hundred years separated, but- I was pleased with the movie. I enjoyed it. And I was very tired when I watched it. It's a testament to the movie that I didn't fall asleep, that I wanted to see how it ended. (laughs) Getting into this today, I feel like we could start right now by saying Disney and Pixar know how to deliver good feelings in their films. And this is no exception. Like when this came out, I remember them saying we're returning to our old animation style. And I was like, completely on board. I was like, yes, because my childhood is Disney films, you know, Disney and Schwarzenegger, which is a weird combination. But now I'm an adult. And really, I want to preface by saying that I don't think and I don't know if I want to say this now or later, but I'm just going to say it now and say, so when we talk about best animated film, we're not talking best kids film, right? Like this has to be the best animated film of the year. And there's nothing about it talking about children. And I feel like with this film, if we're going to look at it, we can't look at it under the scope of did the children like it? Because it has to be a complete film. I, that's a pretty real, pretty astute point to make. And, uh, you know, you in the first episode of our podcast here, you called me the academic, but I don't know. That's an excellent point to make. Disney does a weird thing in my deep dive of the research that says that the reason why this movie flopped is because they put princess in the title. And I don't think that that is the case. Like, I will say that my childhood was Disney. I feel like they don't really know who their demographic is because, you know, I want to be truthful with Disney and say that it's probably not a 50-50 split between the sexes that's coming to the theater. I would disagree with you. It was Pixar that made the rules themselves saying... It's not going to be a princess. The lead isn't always going to be a human or even a male. It's going to be about friendship and not love. Because of Pixar and because of Toy Story, the animation world was desperately trying to move away from the old tropes. And Disney was behind Pixar in that sense. So maybe because of their their focus groups, maybe that's where they gleaned the notion that it was the word princess in the title. I mean, I, I saw Little Mermaid in the theater and that's got the word mermaid in it. Ariel was probably my first crush. She's no Jasmine, tell you that. True. The other weird thing, and you brought it up earlier with the ethnic pandering, is that it was everywhere that this was Disney's first black princess. I wanted to argue this point so bad. And then something occurred to me last night as as I was preparing my final notes for this episode. And it's so weird to me. We're talking about Tiana as the first black princess. And in such a world where everybody wants to bitch and complain about everything, it is never brought up that Jasmine is an Arabic princess. Or that Pocahontas is a Native American princess. Also Mulan. She was an Asian princess. I feel like Disney was only ethnic pandering 
to try and say, like, look at us. We're going to be even more diverse and create a black princess. Meanwhile, this is going to be written and directed by Ron Clements and John Musker, who are like the two whitest guys that you could possibly take a picture of. And then music is going to be composed, arranged. The jazz, you know, blues, gospel music soundtrack is going to be Randy Newman. Randy fucking Newman. And I feel like (laughs) if you're going to be if you're going to be genuine, if you're going to be authentic, Disney should have hired African-American people from the top to the motherfucking bottom of this film, but they still wanted to keep the white people in charge and then just do test audiences and bring Oprah on as a consultant. I want Princess and the Frog to be an authentic experience, and I feel like that is where it severely, severely fell short. Well, they could have imbued The Lion King with a little bit more. There's a lot of black voiceover actors in The Lion Mm -hmm. King, and then when John Favreau remade it, it's all black voiceover actors by and large. But in the original animated, you've got James Earl Jones as the proud king of the pride and his son, the king to be is fucking Jonathan Taylor <laughs> And then he grows up to be Matthew fucking Broderick. So it's, it isn't brought up. How many years went by following the LA riots? How many years went by following the OJ Simpson trial? How many years went by? There were plenty of opportunities during the movement of cultural diversity in the 90s, at least the movement of cultural diversity that we were privy to through our education. Plenty of opportunities. Mm-hmm. I mean, Lion King was the closest they came to making a film about the black experience. And it's about animals. I'm thinking of what is known as either the mirror principle or the mirror theory, social theory, that basically says if the stories that are given to a child give them no way of seeing themselves, then they're going to either lose the identity that they are born with or that they should have, or they're going to assimilate to the dominant identity presented in the stories. So I think of a video of a little girl who had just seen Black Panther. This little girl walks up during a during a press junket and goes right up to this guy and she's dressed to the nines as one of the Wakanda Knights. Yeah. Yeah. That right there is the mirror principle in action. That's a kid who who was able to sift over all of the superheroes and find the one that she sees herself in the most. The reason you didn't notice it is because leading up to this, you are constantly and always represented. And you know that would be what the theory would postulate. Okay. My only counter to that would be if you keep pointing out that, oh, we gave you one, that also marginalizes you. Agreed. And if, if I'm being honest, I completely agree with you. If I want to watch a movie about the black experience, I want it to be a movie by black people, about black people. Yeah, that's all. I'm with you. That was probably the prettiest bow that you could tie onto that whole deep-handed conversation. I think that's where Disney got it wrong this time, is they they wanted to keep their own people in and tell authentic New Orleans story, and they just, that wasn't what they should have done at all. What we thought was going to be the most controversial (laughs) topic was what we're going to get into next, and I would say the third best animated film of the year is up. Award and sixth nomination for Pete Doctor. His first nomination was for the original screenplay Toy Story. Boy, 
Never did I dream that making a flip book out of my third grade math book would lead to this. Now we have to rip the Oscar away. And I feel like with our pre-conversations before this episode, I'm a little angrier, even though you, you set me upon this film. I feel like I'm angrier now that this film actually won. <laughs> Yeah, I think so. Look, this this was one of those memorable movie-going experiences for me. I was completely swept away by it when I saw it. My mouth was sore from holding an involuntary smile for so long. My eyes got dried out from forgetting to blink while the action sequences were happening. And then my eyes got pretty wet in other scenes. And I felt really satisfied when I left the theater. I was so satisfied. We went out to breakfast afterwards because this was when wife and I used to go and see the very first showing on a Saturday morning because probably the, the thinnest crowd that would show up. When I put our name in at the breakfast place, I put our name in as Kevin because I was so taken with Kevin. Kevin was such a great character. But as is the case, sometimes once I had a little time to reflect, my opinion started to change. In the case of Up, I started to feel a little embarrassed at how susceptible I'd allowed myself to be to the pathos. And not because the movie evoked emotions. I got no problem when a movie evokes emotions, but it was because it all felt designed solely to make me emotional. And once I had distance from those moments, I started to notice the manipulation was the anchor right from jump. You know, when you're a kid, movies like that get you hook, line, and sinker. I could say the same thing about Charlotte's Web. I won't, but I could. And But the older you get, somebody could come back at me and be like, well, you're just cynical and jaded, bro. Well, fine. But I think the older that you get, the more your BS detector goes off. I'm just not a fan of movies using methods like that, which I would say are cheap methods to influence my mood. Just tell me a good story and organically I'm going to emote. And boy, is Up good at manipulation. Holy shit. Yeah, I would completely agree. When Up came out, everybody talked about the opening montage. And really, if we're going to talk about Up, I also want to say that it does a lot of things really well. And one of it is I think some of Pixar's best work is in the first 12 minutes of this film. But after that 12 minutes, people start talking less and less about what they really took home with the film. And I feel like if you have a really good beginning and you have an ending that nobody really mentions, that is not a good complete film. They had a really good short and then they scotch taped everything else together. And that's not just me being jaded for this episode. If you do the research, the writer and director and Pixar in general were throwing things from films that didn't work out, like the talking dogs, the set pieces. They threw it at this film. And then knowing that, you kind of go, yeah, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You approach it from a writer's point of view, which I still don't really feel as though I understand story structure. I would not have seen that. Okay, yeah. So Up was nominated for five Academy Awards this year, one of them being Best Original Screenplay. And I hate that only because there's a couple rules in the writing game. And one of the like the top three is you set up your rules in the beginning and you follow those for the rest of the film. And I think every single best animated and even nominated, probably Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs did better at following its rules for the rest of the movie. Another thing is lazy screenwriting is montages and voiceover. If you can't show, if you can't incorporate what you want to see into the story, then you just put in a montage and be like, yep, this we're going to cover the next two years. Here's a bunch of little scenes. And really, I don't want to talk about that with the montage between Carl and Ellie's relationship, because I think that it was really well done. The newsreel 
at the beginning of Up is what I'm saying is like, this guy is going to come into play in an hour. Let's plant the seed right here off the beginning and completely shift the focus kind of off of what's going on between Carl and Ellie. But the other thing is, is they set up these rules. They go 67 years after the newsreel and show Carl and Ellie's complete relationship. And then they show Carl as this decrepit old man that can't even go down the stairs. He's not going to do anything for his health. He's not going to have some rocky training experience. But by the end of the movie, he is pulling up probably a 600 pound bird, a 150 pound (laughs) child and a dog, like a hundred pound dog. He's pulling them up by a garden hose, like onto a wing of the plane and just barely grunting. Oh, blimp. Yes. Hundreds upon hundreds of feet in the air, probably more like thousands upon thousands of feet in the air with gravity sucking them down. Yeah. I wouldn't have a problem with any of that because you could say like, oh, well, it's a kid's movie. Yeah, sure. For the first 20 minutes, they did really well. Well, it's setting up the real world and real world issues like Ellie has a miscarriage. Yeah. So they set up the real world and then they go into the fantasy element, which you could suspend your disbelief for the fact that he blows up enough balloons to float his house and take it away. The science behind that I just want to throw out is that there was probably about 21,000 balloons tied to that house and Mythbusters or whoever said it would take about 20 to 30 million balloons, right? Okay. Suspend your disbelief for that. Then they float from, where were they? San Francisco? Shit, I I don't know. I don't know why I want to plant them in San Francisco. Either way, they float from San Francisco. put them in in Florida because uh, that's where a lot of old people live. Oh, okay. That wasn't wasn't funny. (laughs) No, I mean, let's give it to Florida only because the next part is going to be so ridiculous that they float up in the air and the Boy Scout will get them to South America when the old guy takes a nap by using his little contraption and then oh god it just it's so effing ridiculous that by the time they land what like 400 yards away from where he wants to go the entire rest of the movie is i'm gonna try and float my house to that one specific spot you just floated across the world why don't you climb your happy ass back into your house and direct it over there that i just once you said take a good deep dive into up i went hard and i then i go home Yes, you did. Completely nonsense. Okay, I'm going to touch the montage because they grow up, right? They get older. It's really sweet. It's really nice. Her dream is Paradise Falls. Yes. And by the time they're old, he looks at a photo and he's like, oh, I really should get her to Paradise Falls. He turns around and she's trying to sweep the floor, right? And she is struggling to sweep this floor. She is old and she is not healthy whatsoever. And his next idea is to take her on a fucking hike. And she collapses and dies like it's really sad. And I'm sorry, but if your wife can barely sweep the floor, don't take her up a hill. Her heart gives out on her. Like at that point, I'm like, Carl, this is all this is all your fault, Carl. Like, here's the message I get from up. And I want to deliver this now. If you are in a relationship where the other person is not going to try their utmost to let you have that one dream that you've always had for your whole entire life, then get out before you die and you never get to Paradise Falls. He's going (laughs) to name his house after you and be like, look, I finally got you to Paradise Falls. She's dead, Carl. Like you did not get her to Paradise Falls. You got your house to Paradise Falls with some pseudoscience that doesn't make fucking sense. I'm done. (laughs) Well, I didn't think I'd be defending up, but 
<laughs> you know as, as well as I do that the message here is don't put all your eggs in one basket or the pain of losing someone, but the the joy of moving forward. His adventure is slapdash without a doubt as far as story goes, but maybe that's the point. The unpredictability of it all, this little kid that becomes someone that he gives a damn about. Who else does he have in his life? He's got nobody. He and Ellie can't have children. You don't see any brothers or sisters. I mean, it's literally the two of them together constantly. And then he loses that companion. So I don't know, maybe it's because my wife and I do literally everything other than this podcast together. You know, it touches deep, but with all those plot holes you're pointing out, it's still very saccharine and very, I mean, it's it's emotionally draining. Doctor, the director uh, said up was about the message of the film is the real adventure of life is the relationship we have with other people. And it's so easy to lose sight of the things we have and the people that are around us until they are gone. So if you could wake up a little bit and go, wow, I've got some really cool stuff around me every day, then that's what the movie Up is about. That makes sense. When he finds that she filled in the rest of her book with pictures of them and that the only adventure she ever really needed was being married to him and uh, busting up clouds with their brains and working at the zoo together. and Everything between Ellie and Carl, I'm fine with. I think you should speak on Kevin. Bro, I cannot. I can't watch it without just losing my shit. He is, or she rather, every time she's on screen, I'm like a little kid cackling, completely regressed to like a six-year-old boy. It's great. I mean, and I love its twitchy movements. I love how much it loves the kid. It, it even gets kind of scary when it puts the kid down and starts kind of like moving slowly towards Carl and clamping its its giant beak. What's the kid's name? I can't think of the kid's damn name. Russell. Russell. Yeah. And then Russell sticks up for him. So Kevin, you know, relents. But instead of hugging and cuddling and cradling Carl, he just kind of like clomps him on the head with his, <laughs> with his beak. <laughs> Uh, just the whole, go on, get out of here. Shoo, shoo, get out of here. Go on, beat it. Ah. <laughs> Everything. Like when Kevin gets hurt and stops being funny, the movie loses a lot in my opinion. <laughs> the movie is driven by uh, Doug, the talking dog, and Kevin, the hilarious bird. When the house accidentally bumps against the cliff and one of the windows breaks and Carl gets this super pissed off look on his face and he turns around <laughs> and Doug, Russell, and Kevin are all wrestling, but they're frozen and their eyes are looking at <laughs> Carl, because they know he's going to be mad. And then they all of a sudden just separate and they're standing separately, you know, like soldiers in, in a rank. It's pretty great. Yeah. So, you know, if we're going to talk about the suspension of disbelief, there's going to be at the end of the movie, there's going to be dogs flying planes. It's all over the place. It sets up a really realistic world and then it ends with no rules whatsoever and probably the most forgettable villain. There oh, yeah. is who probably does like the most heinous things. Like he's trying to kill children <laughs> in this. He there's a very dark scene where he's pretty much saying that he beheaded everybody else that has come to his little paradise falls. You know, Carl, these people who uh, pass through here, they all tell pretty good stories. A surveyor making a map. A botanist cataloging plants an old man taking his house to paradise falls 
That's the best one yet. I can't wait to hear how it ends. Yep. But in the same instance, rewatching it, his scenes, I was almost like watching them again for the first time because I was like, I don't remember much of this third act. Yeah, it's unfortunately, it's pretty forgettable. The only part that I remember is part worth remembering is Carl's journey when he goes finally, he has his moment of revelation and decides that he now needs to do the right thing for Russell and for Kevin. But yeah, the whole resolution and denouement are very forgettable. I forgot most of it myself. I even forgot, I completely forgot about the dogs too. I didn't know there was a pack. I just remember Doug. I didn't remember the alpha that talked with the high voice. Um, and it is, I mean, it's just a mess. It's fun to watch. And it's beautiful. Up. It is a beautiful film. Like every time like they show like the balloons, I'm like, oh, you know, like the balloons yeah. are, I, I become a kid again and I'm mesmerized. Dogs flying planes. <laughs> <laughs> With chew toys as their, I don't like if if we ever like did commentary for I would point out all the mistakes. The dogs flying planes. They're trying to shoot the child out of the sky, and the child is attached to a house that is only being floated by balloons. Why you want to go for the entire mass of balloons and try to f- shoot a hundred pound kid out of the sky? Ah, I don't. But I, they have established that the dogs are dumb at this point. Why am I sticking up for this movie? <laughs> You right. believe so, that Michael Giacchino deserved the uh, Oscar for his score for this movie, and I will agree with you that it has become iconic, mainly that that song that is plays over the montage at the beginning, but I disagree. Mm-hmm. I disagree entirely. I, I b- believe, well, I believe Bruno Coulet's score for um, Coraline is, if I was going to go all hipster and buy a record player, which I've considered, I would keep my vinyl purchases very, very limited. But the soundtrack to Coraline would be one that I would purchase. I don't know what that means. I just, I, I love listening <laughs> to it. I put it on around Halloween every year. Um, I, I think it's the choir, the choral arrangements where those, they sound like kids. They're singing in what sounds like an actual language, but is in fact just nothing but gibberish. And you've got a couple different songs where they come in. You've got a good mixture of creepy with that music. And then you've got that song, Exploration, which is the one that plays when Coraline is kind of exploring the Pink Palace. And that is, man, that's gotta be in my top 10 at least my top 20 favorite songs of all time i i can listen to that over and over and over and over and over and over every every character has has musical themes um bobinski has his uh his oompa oompas the bobinski theme is very cool and you you don't hear it as well in the movie as i think you should forcible and spink have their own theme the other world has its own theme. It's it's a very conceptual score, whereas Up is just variations, uh, continued variations on it, it goes dark, you know, for minor, you know, it switches to minor chords for the dark parts and uh, it slows down for the sad parts. Um, for the triumphant parts, it, you know, it goes forte on you. So it's i agree with you it's iconic that opening montage man just uh it wormed its way into everybody's hearts because everybody likes a good therapeutic cry but i mean and i don't even know that he did the score for secret of kells either that's another 
fantastic score. So mm-hmm. original sounding, so unique. Doesn't sound like anything. Giacchino with this and with his theme for Star Trek, he just sounds like somebody that grew up listening to Alan Silvestri and John Williams and is trying to be like them. Bruno Coulet to me sounds like he's trying to be Bruno Coulet, which I dig. Very nice. All right. So moving on, we have two films left. And I think like the, the final call for me is we're going to pick a winner today because that's what we do on the show. But I don't care. Between these two films, I'd be fine with whichever one was the final one to grab the Oscar over up. Because I think we both agree that the kind of animation these two films are delivering are one of the top reasons why we believe that our winner should have won. Stop motion animation. Correct. With everything else, the Fantastic Mr. Fox and Coraline are stop motion animation. And stop motion animation, for everybody that does not know, is the painstaking process of real practical effects. They're moved by puppeteers for every frame. And there's, in regards to Coraline, Leica Studios is the ones that produced Coraline. And the guy that bought Leica is the Nike billionaire. And Coraline was going to be their first film. And of course, I always enjoy when people have a bunch of money and then observe filmmaking because it's a completely different world than anything else. And he was talking to the director of Coraline and he said, how did it go today? And it was like a full 18 hour day. And Selleck, Henry Selleck, the director of Coraline said, good, we got about 10 seconds. <laughs> 10 seconds of film for like an 18 hour day. They bought out a warehouse. They have all the sets set up. And when we set up our social media, I definitely want to have behind the scenes pictures taken of how beautiful Coraline is in real life. You put a lot of points into play here that I would want to talk about. To be honest, I'll probably let you say most everything about Fantastic Mr. Fox. I liked it. I don't love it. Same way I feel about Isle of Dogs. I liked it. I don't love it. I think the dialogue, the snappiness of the dialogue is my favorite part. The animation reminds me of something that they played on HBO at like six in the morning on like Saturdays or Sundays. I don't care for it. It it looks like it needs a, a bit more of a sheen to it. The sheer amount of units shooting in that warehouse, the sheer amount of sets that were simultaneously being used on any given day, the costuming for these puppets that were all made by hand, everything about it, all the miniature sets. I I not only put this as my favorite animated movie of all time, but I, I put this in at least my top 20. And I think it's mainly due to the atmosphere. I'm a sucker for atmosphere. If a film or a song can encapsulate a feeling and just cover me in it like a blanket. The movie's going to have to be really bad for me to not to not love it. And Coraline is absolutely immersive in in atmosphere. If if I were shrunk down, I know that I could navigate my way through the Pink Palace and its environs. No problem. And I was talking about Bruno Coulet. The score adds to all of that as well. Every set is so tactile that it brings this verisimilitude to a story that if it were hand-drawn or even, I mean, strangely enough, if it had been live action, it wouldn't have captured the wonder and the reality quite as well. This story just feels like it was meant to be done in stop motion. I don't want anybody to ever do it any other way. I think it's kind of obvious of which way that we're leaning. Fantastic Mr. Fox to me was refreshing after Up because it does everything that I feel like Up failed to do, which was it set up the rules of the world really well. It set up its characters really well. And as far as 
like you said, snappy dialogue and everything. It was written very well and very intelligently. And to the point that I brought up before of this isn't about the best kids film. This is about the best animated film. I would put Fantastic Mr. Fox over up only because I think it's a more complete film. It has intelligence. It has story. It has a message. It's got fantastic vocal work, which I think Wes Anderson, I don't know how much of a hand he has in casting his own films. I'm sure he's got a huge hand in it, but his casts are always, the posters are always just filled with names of people that you want to go see. And the fact that the lead character's vocal works is George Clooney and Meryl Streep in a relationship, you're never going to see that again. And it's it's fun to hear. Badger's right. These farmers aren't going to quit until they catch me. I shouldn't have lied to your face. I shouldn't have fallen off the wagon and started secretly stealing chickens on the sly. I shouldn't have pushed these farmers so far and tried to embarrass them and cuss with their heads. I enjoyed it, but I shouldn't have done it. And now there's only one way out. Maybe if I hand myself over and let them kill me, stuff me, and hang me over their mantelpiece. You'll do no such thing. Darling, maybe they'll let everyone else live. Oh, why'd you have to get us into this, Foxy? I don't know, but I have a possible theory. I think I have this thing where I need everybody to think I'm the greatest, the quote-unquote fantastic Mr. Fox. And if they aren't completely knocked out and dazzled and kind of intimidated by me, then I don't feel good about myself. Foxes traditionally like to court danger, hunt prey, and outsmart predators, and that's what I'm actually good at. I think at the end of the day, I'm just... I know. We're wild animals. I guess we always were. But you're right. The the stop motion animation for Fantastic Mr. Fox is not as smooth, I would say. It really takes at least two viewings to just kind of get used to how Wes Anderson animated that. I feel like Isle of Dogs was similar. I can't even say that he improved upon his animation. Isle of Dogs is another one that was nominated for Best Academy Award. That was beat out by Spider-Man Into the Multiverse, which was a phenomenal undertaking for an animated film as well. Yeah, it was. But it's, it's, it's got the same thing. It's got the same intelligence. It doesn't have the same pandering to a young audience. I feel like he makes animated films for adults that kids could appreciate, where Pixar is kind of like the flip. They make animated films for kids that adults can kind of get into, you know? So there's a happy medium there. And I think moving forward, the happy medium is Coraline. Here's a question for you. And I don't know how deeply you want to get into this, but I was trying to figure out why I feel the way I feel about stop motion. Henry Selleck, the director of Coraline, did Nightmare Before Christmas, James and the Giant Peach. He was set to do another Neil Gaiman book uh, adaptation called The Graveyard Book, which is essentially the jungle book. But instead of being fostered by animals, this kid is fostered by ghosts in a graveyard. And uh, my wife and I read that because when I heard that he, he was doing that, I was like, oh, yeah, this was years and years ago. And it's since fallen apart. Kellis and Fantastic Mr. Fox and Coraline versus Up, because those are my favorite four an- animated films of the year. And I would knock okay. Up off. I would knock Up off of there immediately, as we talked before. And it comes down to this. And I was I found an article called The Aura of Craftsmanship. And it was a scholarly reviewed, peer reviewed article. And it talked about whether or not that is 
true or whether we project that aura onto pieces of art. So is there an aura to craftsmanship? What is craftsmanship? That's the other question we have to discuss. When people praise Mad Max Fury Road or Baby Driver, a big part of that praise is that these movies employed nearly no CGI in the performance of their stunts, which is a rarity in Hollywood cinema. And this is a point that when I when I when we tell these movies come up to people, I say that and I say it almost as a like a throwing a dart at them, being like, you know, you keep watching your fast and the furious movies and I'll watch these. For some reason, it just feels like more work and therefore it's more commendable. I look at things with such immense respect for all the people that that had a hand in Coraline or had a hand in Secret of Kells. And I don't look at Up in that same way. Is that wrong? These are all the questions that I that I have in my head. I'm assuming you prefer practical animation. I mean, you basically said that. I prefer practical everything. And actually, I've always been a huge proponent on saying that we should award stunt work, you know, like the best stunt of the year, just considering the fact that it, that is, it's a person taking really their life in their hands for our amusement. But with this, there should really be now a best visual effects and a best practical effect award because visual mm-hmm. effects is just becoming this CG nightmare. Digital which color grading takes me out. Is that art though? Is that art? Is that it's a is form that, of is, art? Is that craftsmanship though? Is that craftsmanship? Is it craftsmanship like, on the same level as the practical? It's like buying a two hundred and fifty dollar print of Starry Night Sky to me. You know, like mm. it's not nobody took an oil brush to that canvas. Somebody just printed it out of a printer. I mean, there is an aura about when someone puts their hands to making something and it can be held, it can be touched, and it's not an image on a screen. Maybe it's why I like building Legos, but these folks built everything from Neil Gaiman's story from the ground up with pre-production, everybody, you know, following Henry Selick's lead or Wes Anderson's lead. And I'm sure that if we had a third person in here, and I've got plenty of friends who are graphic design artists, I guarantee they would have arguments for me about why I'm wrong. But I I fall on that side. I fall on the celluloid side. I'll watch a digital movie. But when I know that a movie's been shot on film, I have a deeper respect for it because nothing comes as easy on film. Working on film is harder. Working in the stop motion arena is more difficult. And I stand by what I said. If you were to have made Coraline computer animated or live action, I think it really would have lost a lot. Maybe hand-drawn depending on the art style. And that's not to say that every animated should be stop motion. I think you can ruin a story probably by making it stop motion. I don't care for James and the Giant Peach. I don't think that should have been stop motion. But something like Coraline that marries well with a creepy story uh, like uh, Nightmare Before Christmas or The Corpse Bride, these are perfect stop motion animation vehicles. So it has its place. It's another versus argument. You know, it's kind of like theater versus film. I think it's the same thing with practical versus digital effects. A lot of the films are not aging well that did CGI back in the 90s and like the early aughts, as they call them, where when you have auteurs like Steven Spielberg, who really relished in practical effects, his films are still holding up. And I think like the same thing when it comes to Pixar, you know, like you look at Toy Story 
4 versus Toy Story 1, like CG does not age as well. And the more that they get really good at what they do, and they are the masters of the craft, they are aging their older films. Where Coraline is going to be the same coolness in 10 to 20 years. You could stand by Coraline. And I think I'm going to use that prize of the award and it's best animated is not on the pillars of the Dolby. But if I'm going to say like, let's have this stand the test of time, we can go over up again and I can point out all the flaws with that where Coraline, it gets better and better every time you see it. I feel like we're going to have to sell Coraline because I don't think a lot of people really even know kind of what we're talking about when we talk about the film. But I would sell to the audience, watch Fantastic Mr. Fox as well, any stop motion. You have to watch them almost twice because you have to get used to what you're seeing. And then the second time you see it, then realize that everything that you are watching was touched by a human hand. Even something as ridiculous as like Team America with their stop motion. It wasn't until like Parker and Stone came out and they are, they're animators and they are are hard ass workers. And they came out when they did Team America and they're like, oh, are you going to do another one? And they're like, probably not. (laughs) But like, that was the hardest thing we have ever done. They were really animate that Team America doing this stop motion photography was the biggest bitch have ever undertook. And that gave me such a more appreciation for anybody that does it. One that does it that says, yeah, no, I'm going to we're going to do stop motion with this. We're going to build all the sets. We're going to sew all the clothes for the costumes and we're going to make the motion look as realistic possible. And then for somebody to do it as well as they did of adapting the book Coraline and then making this movie that is beautiful and haunting at the same time, you know, I, how could you not award it? it, it they're just interesting questions because then I wonder, do we feel this way because we had the benefit of a little bit more film history than maybe a kid that got dragged to see this movie by a parent in 2009 or has seen it? A lot of younger people that I've spoken with that w- watch this movie, I would say say one out of every 15 thinks it's the bee's knees and the other 14 are like oh that scared the shit out of me when i was a kid (laughs) (laughs) yeah i I get that too with the my students it's a matter of taste but i also think that the theme of up which according to pete doctor is the real adventure is in the relationships that we have with people that theme is not exactly the same in Coraline, but it's similar and better articulated. You have a child that feels ignored. You have a child that has a, a thirst for adventure and is just constantly stopped from doing anything other than sitting around while her parents work. And she learns through the course of her adventure, she learns through the course of her exploration and searching that you need to be thankful for what you have. You need to give the people in your life a break from time to time. And it's a message not just for for kids, but for parents as well. You can have a kid go down a, a bad road if you don't give them the attention that they need, if you don't give them the guidance. And her parents are almost non-existent for most of that movie. Very few scenes. So not the exact same theme is up, but still a very good articulated theme. It's for adults and it's for kids. And it does. it's not about a 85-year-old man. <laughs> it's about a girl who dyes her hair blue and misses her friends 
and just wants some attention and wants to hang out. And her parents are her only friends. So she's forced to search elsewhere. In the course of feeling ignored and marginalized by her parents, she finds a door in this house that they've moved into in Oregon. And she goes through the door through what looks like uh, an umbilical cord, if I can be real. She gets to like a mirror image of her world, alternate dimension where her mother and her father also live, as does YB and the other tenants of the Pink Pet. Alice, but they all are way cooler, way nicer. They give her things. They do what she wants to do, and they have buttons for eyes. And instead of running for the hills when she sees the buttons, she sticks around because she's seduced by all of the love and all of the attention and all of the you know the gifts and everything that she's showered with. Obviously, that turns out to be a facade, and you know the other mother, as she's referred to, slowly reveals herself to be a hunter, so to speak. She's she slowly changes shape every time you see her. She becomes more and more like an arachnid until the end when she just becomes a flat-out spider. I don't want to say too much more for those that haven't seen it, and those that have know what I'm talking about. So eventually, Coraline's other mother says, if you want to stay here, you have to get buttons sewn into your eyes. And just as a cool aside, when this movie came out, there was a, it must've been a TV spot. I saw it on YouTube and I actually linked it under notes if you want to see it. It's a TV spot with Neil Gaiman talking about kumpunophobia, which is the fear of buttons. <laughs> and so he, he warns people who are kumpunophobes not to go and see Coraline. One of the coolest advertisements for a movie. It's one of the most unique. But by making her into a doll with these button eyes, the other mother can possess and imprison her. And comparatively, her real world starts to look pretty good. So this uh, Alice in Wonderland meets Pinocchio, you know, kid goes down a wrong path for the wrong wrong reasons and realizes in the end that she was needs to be more thankful for what she has. It hews pretty close to the novella. They added the character of Whitey. I don't have a problem with. I think he's he's good for exposition and he's good for a laugh. And then the other his thing silent I, character is terrifying. <laughs> Yeah, his silent character is the one of the most memorable images of the film. He's there for exposition because they don't do voiceovers and they don't do montages. And so when they're sitting there watching the mouse circus, you know, like she's he's excited and she turns to Wiley, who's pretty much like the biggest doll in the movie. And she's like, oh, my gosh, you see that. And he just nods you know like he's the creepiest and through him him telling about his grandmother you get a little bit of a backstory about the pink palace surprise she let you move in my grandma she owns the pink palace won't rent to people with kids what do you mean oh i'm not supposed to talk about it i'm yb yb lovat yb short for yborn not my idea of course What'd you get saddled with? I wasn't saddled with anything. It's Coraline. Uh, Caroline what? Coraline. Coraline Jones. Hmm. It's not real scientific, but I heard an ordinary name like Caroline can lead people to have ordinary expectations about a person. Mm. Uh, which then you get even more later on when, when the other mother imprisons Coraline. Neil Gaiman is quirky fellow. Like you were saying about that interview. He also, if anybody uh, is interested, he wrote an article for I think the Guardian about his time at the Oscars going because of Coraline and you know they wedged him up on the second floor balcony he only paid attention to when Coraline came up and then after that he was trying to go see friends on the first floor and 
they blocked him. And so then he stuffed his face and he just kind of miserable to be there because he's just an author and that's all he wants to be. What I really liked about the book Coraline is even the dedication was intriguing because it says, I started this for one daughter and I finished it for the other. And that's because he began writing the book and then put it down for a little bit because of move and life. And then he picked it up and finished it as another daughter was reaching that age. That's pretty cool. I, I could go on and on about Coraline. It impresses me to no end. It's one of those movies that I, I try to show to as many people as possible. What would um, you say your favorite the, part of Coraline is? I would say the most memorable part of Coraline for me is where she comes out of Forcible and Spink's basement in the real world. And a fog has settled around the Pink Palace. And that's where she finds YB photographing the banana slugs. But just the way that the fog moves and just no, I mean, you know, it's just probably pulled cotton, but it's so cool looking. And that's that atmosphere that I'm talking about. Or the falling action leading to the resolution where she makes the deal at long last with the other mother to get her parents back. And she has to go upstairs to Mr. Bobinski's apartment to get one of the souls in the balls. The dialogue that Ian McShane has there. Why you want to leave? You can have whatever you want, Zigda. Always. You don't get it, do you? I don't understand. Of course you don't understand. You're just a copy she made of the real Mr. B. Not even that anymore. And he's like, <gasps> not even that anymore. And then the rat like pokes us just, I mean, when you said that at the beginning of the podcast about for adults and kids, uh, it's such a good, creepy movie. And I love creepy. I really like creepy. This is a creepy that isn't, it's, it's not gory. It's not anxiety producing. It's, it's a haunted house. And I'm a sucker for a haunted house, man. I really am. And that whole, you know, when she's in the theater then at, at the, and goes to the stage and the two actresses are tied up together like taffy. So, mm-hmm. so everything, everything, every note, every move. And then obviously the, the climactic scene where she's finally going back into the house and the whole world is starting to come apart. And she's walking and she's got the cat also voiced by Keith David. Interestingly enough, there's some pa- <laughs> yes. there's some parallels, some parallels you can draw. But yeah, she's got the cat on her shoulders. And as she walks through the foyer and past the the stairway, the paint is like peeling as she passes it. So this whole world is disintegrating. It looks really cool. Um, it, it's a little CGI at that point. I, I haven't seen any behind the scenes footage of that. I guess I guess my final thought would be that when I watch Up, I smile because it's so sweet. But when I watch Coraline, I smile because it's so goddamn cool. And I don't I don't feel the same way as I feel about any of these other movies. And Coraline is so infinitely rewatchable. You can watch. I watch it. It's one of those ones that I watch every year for Halloween. But it's it's literally I have to slap my own hands because I want to throw it in 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 June or July or August. And it's like just wait until <laughs> just wait till Halloween rolls around and throw it in. Just wait. And uh, that's my final thought. <laughs> I like it. I mean, I don't have much to add other than the fact that with stop animation doing 10 seconds of film a day, 
everything that you see on that screen is a choice that has been molded over and touched by so many hands that you know exactly like what is being delivered is exactly what they wanted to deliver. Labor of love almost sounds like cliche of a phrase to say, but that's what you're going to get with the stop animation. And I think Coraline, once you watch it, you let it become a part of you. Looking at behind the scenes of Coraline is as fascinating as looking at the finished product. They can make a coffee table book based off of some of the image. The, when she is walking through the snowy forest, there's a picture online that I'll, we'll put on our social media. It's as beautiful as what is on the screen. And there's a puppeteer in the shot, you know, like playing with Coral. And I still look at the, the shot and I'm just fascinated at everything, every little piece of detail that is going into this. But it's the Beetlejuice house. You know, she's like, you could totally tell when she's stamping down the carpet in the hallway that she is standing where Winona Ryder is lifted into the air at the end of Beetlejuice. Is it really? You didn't know that? No. They modeled it after the Beetle. They modeled the inside after the Beetlejuice house. Neil Gaiman wrote it after the house that he had on the West Coast. And it's not totally described in the book, you know, like, but when he went to visit the set, they unveiled the set for him. And he was like, I was staring at my house. It was just a weird link of minds. But with the carpenters built was Neil Gaiman's house. And he was like, that's when I kind of knew that everything was going to be all right. He said that this is his favorite adaptation of anything that he's written. I know in my heart that Coraline was the best animated film of 2009. Agreed. So in a perfect world, Henry Selleck and Neil Gaiman's Coraline wins the Academy Award for best animated film of 2009 and is emboldened, emblazoned forever and ever upon, what are they? The Dolby Pillars. Pillars? The Dolby Pillars. Pillars of Dolby. Pillars of Dolby. I like that better. And with that, I want to thank everybody who tuned in again this week to listen. We appreciate it. Anything that you want to say to us, we'll definitely have a social media up for next week. I'll get on that uh, toot sweet. And until next week, good night and good luck. Perfect. Hey guys, this is Spro, and I just want to thank you for listening to this episode of Spro and Lee Take on the Academy. All the film snippets you heard are from great films, which we urge you to check out. Be sure to subscribe. We'll be back in two weeks with our first Quickies episode, and this one features a special guest and our friend, Emily. In the meantime, you can find us and follow us on Twitter and Instagram, at Spro and Lee, all one word, or email us at takeontheacademy at gmail.com. A Quickie episode, you ask? What in the world is that? And who are we going to have a Quickie with? Well... Who else, I reply. We're just going to settle in, put on our robes, and have a quickie with Harvey Weinstein. (laughs) 
See you September 28th. Until then, stream on. Coraline Jones always dreamed of finding a better world. A world more exciting than this. But never did she imagine that she'd discover it in her own home. A parallel place. We've been waiting for you, Coraline. Where parents are always fun. I love your garden! Can't believe you did this! And everything is so good. It just can't be real. Mom? You're just in time for supper, dear. You're not my mother. My mother doesn't have... B-b-b-buttons? Do you like them? I'm your other mother, silly. You probably think this world is a dream come true. My name! But you're wrong. You do like it here, don't you, Coraline? You could stay here forever. There's one tiny little thing we need to do. Black is traditional. <gasps> She's got this whole world where everything's better, but it's all a trap. You may come out when you've learned to be a loving daughter. From Henry Selick, the director of The Nightmare Before Christmas, comes a world of extraordinary imagination. <laughs> Spooky secrets. Who are you? You're in terrible danger, girl. <laughs> And daring discoveries. I still have to find my parents to set them free. This year, when adventure comes knocking, <laughs> there are some doors that should never be opened. I'm not scared! Coraline, written for the screen and directed by Henry Selleck, presented in Real D3D. Yeah, that's the one.